Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest updates from the front lines, chat to Estonia's ambassador to the UK, and Francis Durnley interviews an Oscar-winning director about his work in supporting Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 13th of March, one year and 17 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and the Estonian ambassador to the UK, Vilyar Lubi. Before we talked about the news from Ukraine, I asked Francis Sternley for the latest from the diplomatic space. Thanks, David. It's good to be back. Amongst other things, I was doing quite a lot of historical reading whilst I was away, particularly about the Crimean War of 1853-56, which is, of course, a subject that's hugely relevant to all of this and isn't really one we've managed to talk about in depth yet. And so hopefully there will be an opportunity to do so in the coming weeks. But turning to the present, President Xi of China is planning to travel to Russia to meet Putin as early as next week. People who are familiar with the matter have told us. It comes off the back, of course, of Putin hosting China's top diplomat in Moscow last month. And then they signalled that Xi would travel to Russia. But I think the timing of this is perhaps much earlier than people anticipated and no doubt will cause concern amongst Western diplomats. So it's a signal that uh, she is choosing a side and may well be about to provide military support to Russia to use in Ukraine. Now, we don't have confirmation of that, but I think that this you know, will, as I say, lead to further speculation that that is the case. Another interesting development with regard to China today is that she has made his first speech since the beginning of his pres- precedent-breaking third term in office. And he referenced in this speech to strengthening the military and forming a great wall of steel. That's his term. And said that security is the foundation for development. Stability is the prerequisite for prosperity. And then he went on and talked about how they were going to uh, hike up military spending even further to its fastest pace in four years, citing numerous foreign threats. Now, it's important to say here that this, of course, could be just trying to act as a deterrent to the West, saying, you know, don't, don't go too far in your condemnation of us. We're, we're mobilizing, etc. Or uh, playing it for a domestic audience at home, both 
highly plausible. But always the danger in these situations, as we've seen numerous times in history, is that when a country goes down the path of, of, of talking about mobilising, particularly dictatorships, that things can spiral out of control and go into a direction where things can, can escalate in a manner that, that were never um, foreplanned. So I think that is, again, another cause for concern here, given the uh, bellicose no- nature of the rhetoric. Um, I think also as well, it's just important to make reference to the fact that there have been numerous incidents of the Chinese military provoking numerous uh, examples of uh, whether it be spy balloons or um, uh, other practices that we've reported on the podcast that is leading to increased anger uh, amongst Western politicians. And so I think that there are increasing concerns about what China is doing as a response to the Ukraine war. And in that spirit, I just want to say uh, thank you very much to a listener who wrote, um, wrote, wrote to me about uh, a, a fireside chat, a private one that they attended in Singapore with a former foreign minister of Singapore. And in that conversation, uh, the uh, foreign minister said that when asked what his primary anxiety was about the geopolitical reality of the present, he said that number one is China and everything that it is doing in preparation for war. And when he elaborated, he said that China is going to great lengths to be able to be at war without suffering strategic dependencies from sanctions or um, embargoes. So if that is true, of course, it's an example of them doing what exactly what Russia did prior to the war in Ukraine which is why in the short term, and I do emphasise that in the short term, the Russian economy does seem to have been more robust, perhaps than many people anticipated, although I do still think that the long-term pitch and the long-term damage that's been wrought by their economic policy is uh, profound and will eventually um, rear its head. But we're not there yet. Um, so there's, if this is what Singapore is saying, and of course they've got a lot of um, intimate knowledge of what China is doing, given their geography, um, I think there is perhaps a, a waking up that is necessary amongst uh, the Western um, diplomats who still think that making overtures to China and saying that you know peace and and working more closely with them, particularly economic ties, that's what Germany, it's what France are talking about doing, is perhaps rather naive. But no doubt we'll come to that later. So that's where we are with regard to China. But there are numerous other diplomatic updates. But I'm aware that we should get to Dom first. So let's go to Dom. Brilliant. Thank you, Francis. We'll come back to you later. Dom Nickel, what's the latest from Ukraine? Yep. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So in Ukraine, there has been some partisan activity in the southern area. So between Hezon and Zaporizhia, a group calling itself the Atesh Partisan Movement over the weekend destroyed uh, an air, a, a, a length of railway line. Now, this has been it's been fairly quiet in recent weeks, but there has been quite a lot of of Ukrainian partisan activity in the South in particular. We had a fascinating interview with, or we had Colin Freeman, our our colleague, our friend and colleague on a couple of weeks ago to talk about interviews that he had done in Herzon, in the city there, which I recommend people go back and and you'll find his article online and uh, and listen uh, again if need be. But yeah, so they've not gone away, you know, to to coin a phrase. Elsewhere, today's UK defence intelligence estimate are suggesting or saying that uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, has lost access, their words, lost access to convicts. Uh, Wagner in recent months have been recruiting quite heavily from from the jail system in Russia, trying to get people into the into the company. This backs up his his business model of exporting Russian security around the world. So he's, he's had to have had to have the warm bodies and, and they are increasingly being turned into 
uh, cold bodies in Ukraine. So he's also, at the same time, he's got into a right old spat with um, Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister, and um, Kirasimov to a, to a lesser extent about about who's actually who's actually succeeding in any kind of fight for Russia in in Ukraine. And it looks as if he's. Uh, well, this so UK defence intelligence is saying he's lost access to the, com- the convicts, i.e., to recruit from the jails, simply because of this spat with the Russian MOD. And since March, Wagner has set up a number of at- what they're calling outreach teams in um, sports centres and the likes. You'll see some imagery online. If you look around, you'll see these little desks with a flag, quite clearly, in a sort of boxing gym uh, and other other sports centres. This is was reported to be in forty locations across. Russia. There are also, Wagner are also conducting career talks in schools, uh, whereby uh, school children are offered, uh, are, are told to, if they want to come and be a warrior for Russia, they, they give their contact details. And then I don't know if it's an age thing or quite how long before Wagner then come knocking saying, do you want to, uh, do you want to come and join us? UKDI Defence Intelligence is also saying that they, they, are, they have assessed that half the Wagner convicts are likely casualties in Ukraine. So casualty being killed, wounded, taken prisoner or uh, missing. But half is a, is a huge number. And they're suggesting that if this ban endures, if this ban on allowing Wagner to recruit from convicts endures, Prigozhin is likely to, to have to downscale his operations either in the in the ambition or the geographic uh, spread or both, which of course is not going to do do anything for his political ambition and furthering this internal feud with uh, with Shoigu and Grasimov and the like. President Zelensky last night in his nightly address, he was saying that 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 Russia are still taking a huge a huge beating in. Bakhmut in the area of Bakhmut. I mean, it's not coming clearly, not coming at nil cost for Ukraine, but there's a huge, a huge casualty toll there. And President Zelensky said that just in the week, last week, the week commencing 6th of March, Russia lost 1,100 killed and almost, well, slightly more, 1,500 wounded in Bakhmut. I mean, that's that's a very high. Ordinarily, you'd expect a three to one or four to one ratio of of wounded to to killed. So that's that's almost parity which you might say well there should be there should be more wounded but i think what that focuses on there what that's suggesting is there's there's an enormous amount of people being killed there which speaks to this lack of training lack of um equipment and they're not very well led at all they're just being fed forward uh, looking for the gaps in the ukrainian line and then they will back up any any minor breakthroughs they'll then push more people into that area to try and try and get through so huge casualty toll there for um, for russia um and i will uh, i'll take a little pause there thanks very much tom well tom can i just stay with you for the moment um can you tell us a little bit about your day at the moment you're in uh, i believe you're in oxford um have you spoken to anybody interesting and um at this conference you're at can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, sure. So I'm here in St. Hughes College, part of the um, University of Oxford, um, and it's at the the first what's planned to be annual Oxford Ukraine summit. So we've had um, various there are various uh, diplomats here, um, other policymakers, academics, and um, uh, uh, experts in their particular field, and it's been it's been very interesting actually so far. There've been there've been uh, we've had Mr. Pristaiko, the the uh, Ukraine's ambassador to the UK. He's he's moderated the panel and and spoken. There's there are other um, other people here, and I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Vilja Luby, Mr. Luby, the uh, Estonia's ambassador to the UK. Mr. Luby, we last met in the uh, Serpentine a couple of weeks ago, having a cold water swim celebrating Estonia's Independence Day. 
Um, welcome. I almost didn't recognise you with your clothes on. But we heard just now from Ukraine's Daldin from Kiev, the uh, Minister for Economic Affairs. He was talking about setting up, or there has been set up, a trust fund, his words, trust fund for Ukraine, with $1 billion pledged to it. Now, we also heard that the World Bank thinks that at least $300 billion is required for reconstitution. So could I ask, what, what is a trust fund when we talk about a country, trying to rebuild a country? And I mean, $1 billion, if 300 is the World Bank's estimate, it does, it's not even a start, is it? Good, good morning. Good morning. No, it's not. But of course, you know, if you have a country that is in war, like Ukraine is a big country that has lost 35% of its GDP, then $1 billion is nothing, but $1 billion is a start. And uh, what it's for, I think, you know, it's still for Ukrainians to, to determine. Uh, there are many, many things, many uh, uh, priorities. But what uh, many uh, international financial institutions have said, that, and also the, the ministers themselves said, companies are very willing to do business, to grow fast. So that I, I would say that those grants are not needed for the companies to run their affairs, but just probably we government need to do the most to help them to prosper. So cut red tape, provide lots of uh, guarantees like... Uh, 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 cheap uh, loans, also uh, state guarantees, invest heavily in infrastructure that is so much damaged. Otherwise, don't try to mess these business models. I think uh, companies know much better what they need to do and how to do it than the governments do. So that uh, just rolling out grants, I don't think it's a uh, right way, but helping them you know, to do what they do best is the way forward. Now, a lot of the discussion this morning has been around Ukraine's ambition to join the EU, European Union and NATO. And we heard from a former foreign office, British foreign office diplomat, that there are basically in the EU, there's three groups of opposition, essentially, to, to Ukraine's accession to the EU. And uh, this chap was was suggesting that, that the first group are, are sceptical about enlargement, so increasing Ukraine, just in terms of the number of people that would then be able to enjoy freedom of movement across the rest of the EU and the cost of repairing the country, as we've, as we've just been hearing. Um, and he suggested France was in the vanguard of, of that sort of level of, of very cautious sort of scepticism. The second group were, he was suggesting that are countries who are um, unsure if it's wise for the EU to go down the route it is currently exploring about moving away from unanimous voting in terms of majority voting and what they what they uh, what he was suggesting there was um oh, oh, oh sorry so he was he was suggesting they should stick with um if they stick with unanimous voting and Ukraine joins then Ukraine will immediately be able to have a veto on any future relationship with Russia now you can debate should there be any relationship at all um, at any level. That's not the point that was being discussed. They were suggesting that there are many states in the EU that would like to have some kind of relationship with Russia after this and that Ukraine would have an immediate veto. That's the second group. And the third group was though, was, was basically Hungary, who who is holding up um, NATO, uh, Ukraine's ambition for the EU, just, just to get leverage, political leverage. So where do you stand on that? And, and where do you think Ukraine is on EU and NATO accession? I think 
anything regarding, you know, if uh, Ukraine uh, joins any of the clubs and, uh, and gains a, a veto, I think it's very premature. It's mostly need to see, you know, what we can do in the next few years. Uh, and what I mean by that, uh, one thing is extremely important. To join either NATO or EU, nothing uh, happens overnight, and it shouldn't, because, you know, there are still always certain criterias a new candidate needs to meet before it can join either NATO or EU. So when I went through that process, we know what it means. But what we can already uh, agree on right now is that countries like Ukraine should have at least a perspective to join both clubs. Because, you know, uh, every democratic country should be, uh, let's say, have the freedom that they can always apply for membership any clubs they want in the world. That is, I mean, the democratic clubs. Because also if they take Russia, take the past 100 years, for Russia and the previous Soviet Union, what has been the most stable border between the East and West, so to speak? It was the Iron Curtain. There was no grey area. Either you were the Soviet bloc or you were the Western bloc. So that you think that Ukraine will remain somewhere in the grey area, it doesn't work like that. So meaning membership in the EU, membership in NATO, clearly defines where this country sees its future. So we should provide this perspective. Yes, we have to be strict. All the criteria needs to be met, either to join NATO or the EU. But the perspective has to be extremely straightforward. And in terms of a timeline, what, what do you think? Difficult to say. I think it, it takes a uh, lot of time because, you know, especially EU, uh, let's say, uh, agreeing on all reforms and implementing all reforms, it takes you to uh, join the single market. It's a huge task. But I think, you know, Ukraine has shown that uh, they want to do it. In a way, maybe it was, let's say, a difficult part for Ukraine before the war that they wanted to sit on uh, both chairs at the same time, have the best of both worlds. But now they understand, you know, I think the choice is clear cut. Russia is out, the West is in. And I think they are very determined to make the reforms. And what is important, the reforms had, had to be made by the Ukrainians, not by us. But we need to be there to support them. As long as they believe that they can do it, we have to be there. So Ukraine in the EU, 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Uh, I don't want to give a timeline. I think, you know, I would say it takes definitely more than 10 years. But the thing is that this is also important that we prepare for that. But obviously the thing is, if the perspective is there, the support is there, everything the country does in order to join NATO, EU, makes the country better. So, yes, politicians need to handle also the expectation, expectations, but the trend is positive and I think people are going to see it. And just finally, I think we heard at the start, Francis uh, gave the news that Xi Jinping, President Xi of China, is going to visit, uh, we're told, Russia and Ukraine next week. Do you think that is going to be helpful for the war, i.e. to settle the war, or is it just a power play for Beijing? I think we're going to see uh, what it will be. So that uh, if he goes out to Kiev, Yes, I think, you know, it's a, it's a positive trend. At least uh, then China wants to listen because the peace plan, so the so-called peace plan that they proposed a few weeks back, they didn't even consult with uh, Kiev. So, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And if you propose a peace plan that one of the parties, Russia, uh, cheers immediately 
it means not a good peace plan. Because I think a real peace plan would be something that both parties would say, it, it's not exactly what we want. But if Russia says, yes, fantastic, it's not a peace plan. So I think China needs to show that they are serious about it. I think, yes, they want to be a global power. They want to be, a, let's say, international mediator that they can pull it off. So it's reputational, let's say, uh, Campbell by China. If they really want to be serious, they, want, they need to show results as well. I, w- I wanted to ask, Ambassador, um, we have lots of Ukrainian listeners who, who listen to us uh, every day. Um, what's your message to them? I mean, you, turned, you talked earlier about political solidarity with, Ukraine, with, with, with Ukrainian politicians in their ascension to the European Union. What's your message to the citizens of the country? I would say that what Ukraine and Ukrainians have shown the world that how the country can unify against uh, aggressor and then work uh, for the common cause is just really remarkable. Estonia did the same 30 years ago. And I often bring up this example that when we had the foreign guests uh, visiting Estonia in the early 90s, when Estonia went through uh, difficult reforms, I don't think many in the West believe that Estonia can pull it off. And it wasn't even so important. It was important that Estonians themselves believed that we can pull it off. And we just needed some small support from the West to help us, to believe in us. Of course, they don't need to do the reforms for us. We need to do the reforms, but we need to believe in that. And I see this the same happening with Ukraine and Ukrainians. They know they want to change and they're very determined to do that. So we need to support them. Francis, can I come to you? There were quite a few other diplomatic updates you had for us. Well, thanks, David. I'll try and whiz through these. There's been some quite interesting remarks over the weekend from British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Now, some people have jumped on these as thinking that it's a weakening of the British position. But actually, when one sees the comments in the round, you can see that actually it's not really a a, a change at all. So what he said is, is that the Ukraine conflict will end at the negotiation table. And you can imagine some people sort of jumping out of their seats at this notion. But he said that this, of course, this negotiating table is a decision for Ukraine to make. So his point being that at the end of the day, all conflicts end at a negotiation table, but how that negotiation looks should be shaped profoundly and should be in the time frame that uh, determined by the Ukrainians. That's what he was arguing. And he said that his stance is unequivocal about the UK's desire for Ukraine to win the war. So this, of course, comes off the back of numerous leaders in the past week or so just reaffirming in the West their commitment to Ukraine in the long term standing by them and providing military equipment and economic sanctions against Russia. Yet differences on how and when negotiations to end the conflict could possibly be held have spilled over into the public at various points with French leaders seen as more open to talks, of course, as we've spoken about in the past, perhaps Germany too, compared to, say, the Americans, the British and uh, the Baltic states who are much firmer that there should be no negotiations until uh, Ukraine is in a position to want to sit down with Putin. So, um, or whoever um, may be in a position to be negotiating with Ukraine, there's no reason to think that it would necessarily be Putin for all the reasons we've talked about in the past. So that's quite noteworthy, I think. Um, Of course, before I uh, was away last week, there was lots going on with regard to Moldova and uh, 
reports of an attempted coup there by Russian-backed sort of separatists, particularly in one region. Now, the reason this is significant is, of course, this is on the Ukrainian border. And so it's no surprise that the Kremlin are trying to cause issues there, destabilizing another place that Ukraine has to watch strategically, um, and as well as being a country that uh, it believes still uh, is is part of Russian's sphere of influence, despite its uh, government being much more pro-EU and pro-Western in its stance. But uh, the reason I mention them is that we heard on Sunday that the Moldovan police have uh, said that they've arrested members of a network that they suspect of being orchestrated by Moscow in a bid to destabilise the country. So there were numerous searches on the Saturday night and 25 men were questioned and seven of them detained. That's according to the Moldovan police chief. And they've said they've managed to infiltrate this, infiltrate this group of uh, um, Moldovan Russian uh, individuals and have acquired numerous evidence that these people are involved in and have been trained for a specific role, namely of destabilizing the Moldovan state. So, again, just I thought an interesting update there of, again, more. Um, interesting events taking place there that are significant. In terms of other diplomatic developments, I was quite struck um, by uh, the, of course, development that the Swiss are not going to be providing um, any uh, weapons to Ukraine. Now, this doesn't necessarily come as a big shock. Big shock. Uh, the Swiss are famously uh, neutral in matters of war. But there was an inkling, which I reported a couple of weeks ago, that perhaps this war would be different, that Switzerland would be willing to send certain weapons or at least would see weapons that have passed through Switzerland uh, go to Ukraine but that is not going to be happen, uh, happening and the um, Swiss president has said that uh, yes it's a sort of controversial thing but that it's a long established rule that Switzerland remains neutral and so he's defended the, um, the ban on transferring these Swiss made arms to Ukraine also, development with regard to Iran. They've reached a deal to buy advanced fighter planes, SU-35s, from Russia. That's according to Iranian state media. Again, no great shock there. Of course, Russia have been purchasing now numerous Iranian weaponry, most famously the drones, which have been so devastating on uh, Ukrainian cities. And so it's just a further example of Iran and Russia working more closely together on military cooperation. Uh, also a development with regard to Canada. I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners and even though we can't talk about lots of what Canada are doing uh, on the podcast, there's so much help happening elsewhere. Nonetheless, when it does happen, we do try and report on it. So Canada have banned the import of all Russian aluminium and steel products in a move that Ottawa has said is aimed at denying Moscow the ability to fund its war against Ukraine. Now, the ban on imports was introduced as a 200% tariff on Russian aluminium announced by the US last month. So it was sort of come off the back of that. And these restrictions include unwrought sheet and finished products such as containers and household items. For steel, the ban will impact iron and non-alloy steel, semi-finished products and finished products such as tubes and pipes. So it's another example of how the world economy is being shaped by this war in ways that would have been very difficult to predict. Now, a lot of what I'm speaking about here is with regard to, of course, um, uh, weapons, sanctions on Russia, for instance, and 
I just wanted to end with a new report that's been released by the International Partnership for Human Rights and the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission. And they have found that there are numerous examples of Western-made dual-use components that continue to reach Russia long after the invasion of Ukraine, despite the sanctions, and that some of these components have actually been used in weapons that have been involved in suspected Russian war crimes. So this, of course, comes as... uh, really is a revelation, perhaps no great shock, but nonetheless, the, the, the evidence that's compiled in this report is pretty shocking about how there are numerous companies that are listed of, of technology firms where these that have developed these components. And whilst in theory, they have not been providing them to Russia, clearly through back channels, they've been making a way to Russia. And as I say, have been seemingly used in weaponry that's committed numerous atrocities on Ukrainian soil. So um, it's an in-depth report. I can't summarize it and do justice to it now, but I would point listeners to that. As I say, it's a a new report um, by the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission and the International Partnership for Human Rights. So I'd recommend that people take a look at that. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom, can I come to you for some final updates uh, before I've just got a quick question for Francis and then we'll do our final thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, so just to say that today the British government have announced an uplift in defence spending. So we're not actually getting our budget here until Wednesday, but uh, but overnight it was released that the MOD is going to get an extra £5 billion over the next two years. Now, they were very specific about what this is going on. It's not just sort of off to the MOD, you know, do whatever you want kind of thing. It is going on about £2 billion is going on on refurbing and re- rebuilding the depleted ammunition stocks that have been uh, gifted for Ukraine and uh, and therefore uh, no longer available to uh, to UK. So I don't know how much what proportion of that is going to be buy more to send to Ukraine, vice buy more, stick it on the shelf and re- rebuild the uh, the supply. But it's become very very apparent through the through the yeah what a modern war looks like and the ammunition if if it, if it hadn't been obvious already the kind of rate of attrition going through the am, the ammunition stocks so two billion pounds immediately uh, for for replenishing um, I mean, main uh, ammunition, mainly artillery stocks, uh, and another three billion, circa three billion, just under, going for the British uh, nuclear enterprise. Now, this ties in with an announcement we're going to we're expecting this afternoon about the AUKUS um, submarine deal. AUKUS is the Australia, UK, US, the trilateral defence agreement. Uh, it's science and technology and some other bits and pieces, but the the big beast of the AUKUS deal is a future submarine for. Australia. Um, Three billion quid is going into the British nuclear industry to to better prepare um, UK here, UK industry for the replacement to the astute submarine, astute hunter killers, of which there are five, two are still in build. That shows you how they're brand new. We haven't haven't even got the all the seven new boats before they're talking about what's coming next. And the money is for that next one. But that will also help with AUKUS. And it's looking like AUKUS is going to be probably a, a British-designed boat, the actual submarine, with a, a, an American-designed middle bit, the weapons and the vertical launch tubes and that and that kind of thing. Um, Rishi Sunak, uh, British Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, um, Australia's PM, they're in California today, going to meet Joe Biden, gonna, they're going to announce it later. That's likely what it'll be. This will take years, I mean, a, a decade at least before before there, there is a, an AUKUS boat. Um, and in the meantime, it looks as if the US is going to increase patrols by um, Virginia-class nuclear hunter-killers and then maybe even sell some 
to to Australia until the AUKUS boat comes along. The bigger deal is, of course, this is this is all about China, and this means that it, you know it's good that the UK, US, and Australia, um, obviously. The five eyes share intelligence sharing nations so able to access the highest level of intelligence already share or sort of personnel can serve on each each other's boats we have british sailors on australian boats and vice versa i'm not entirely sure about american boats but i wouldn't wouldn't be surprised um and it means that they're able to use they've got the, the backing for ports and technology and support and supply chains and so on and so forth so this is all about increasing um the ability to have very very capable hunter killer submarines in the indo-pacific and elsewhere but mainly indo-pacific and if people are still thinking well hang on why why are we investing in little metal tubes to go around the world sinking other little metal tubes i was told by a, a former government um official intelligence official that actually you shouldn't think about submarines in terms of little cigar tubes snuggling around you know looking for other cigar tubes they're little bubbles of gchq and the nsa going around, listening, watching, building up a pattern of a potential adversary, China, Taiwan, and uh, and building up that picture. So I think this AUKUS deal that we're going to get later on today out of California um, should be a should be a good deal, good deal now for for industry, I think, and a good deal uh, in the future as well. But that uh, that is, is partly what this three billion extra for, for UK defence funding is for. Thank you very much, Dom. Just one question to Francis. You've been off for a week and it feels a little bit like the diplomatic picture that you've returned to has shifted quite a bit. I just wanted to ask you, Francis, your thoughts on whether you think, coming back to this with fresh eyes, you think the picture now, the state of play of international diplomacy around the war in Ukraine is more positive for Ukraine than it was or potentially more negative? What what, what would you say to that? Yes, well, they say a week is a long time in politics. I don't know what it would be in diplomacy, perhaps a lifetime. It's it's extraordinary how much seems to have changed. And indeed, I've been trying to follow it whilst I've been away. But it's just the level of, of, of shifting sands is such that it's very, very difficult to really feel all over it. And that's why I've been spending so much time this morning trying to get back up to date again. I mean, I think my biggest observation on where we are at the moment is we're seeing yet a further solidification of the kind of blocks that we've been talking about now for several months. I mean, you've, we've we spoke about China earlier and, of course, them uh, forging even closer ties with uh, Russia. And I think there are all sorts of reasons for that, which I've spoken about in the past, which I won't go over again. Then, of course, you look at the deal that uh, Don was just describing there, AUKUS and Australia and other Western powers. I mean, this is we are seeing clearly if you could just think back to where we were a year ago, that it was so focused on what was happening in Russia and in Ukraine. And yet now, so often, the conversation is really about what's happening with China and the broader uh, diplomatic picture as the world is adapting to what has happened. I mean, I think in many ways, what's happening in Ukraine has be- become a almost a, a trigger point for, for much, much broader East-West democratic autocratic shifts that perhaps were inevitable but as ever war is the engine of history and we're seeing how it is profoundly transforming the geopolitical landscape i mean in terms of of seeing it as, as as good or bad i mean it depends on whether you see this as an inevitability or whether this is a, a tragedy you know that the world was able to effectively keep these things in check that the international order was was fairly solid and that this has been a uh, you know, a, 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 a tragic state of affairs where things have, have mistakes were made, miscalculations, and we we are where we are. 
or whether you see this as something that was was uh, was always going to to happen and the west has been living in a sense in a rather naive approach to whether it be china or to russia but as i say what's so interesting for me at least is is how if you've been having a conversation about russia a year ago it would have been very focused on the power of its military the power of its geopolitical influence both of those have now been undermined to such a profound point that i'm able to talk to journalists and almost all of the conversation that we have is around china and the role of china in in supporting russia and uh, and and the way in which russia's influence has declined and it's as if the the, the sort of the paper tiger or, or, or whatever the balloon of, of, of Russia has been popped by this war that it was living on on a kind of prestige a, a grandiosity that was really built from the Second World War and its obviously importance in the nuclear space during the Cold War but actually there are many many people now who just sort of see that it for what it was which was a, a country that was not actually anywhere near as powerful as it purported itself to be now I don't say any of that to undermine the importance of what is happening in the ground in Ukraine, the threat posed by Russia. I'm, in no way am I seeking to do that. I still think that it's absolutely paramount to us watching and observing what is going on in Russia. But I just comment on this because we're now in a space, I think, where we're seeing a huge, dip, as I say, geopolitical shift in, in, in the way in which the world is approaching the fundamental questions now. And that is something that is quite new in, in recent months. And I think this week really speaks to that shift in quite a, a clear way. Where it's going to end up, I don't know. But um, I think it's it's difficult to be to be profoundly optimistic uh, at, at this moment when there are still so many countries that seem to be wobbling and equivocating on this issue of of, of China. As I said way back at the beginning of, uh, I think it was probably the second episode of this year, or where we were sort of summarising where we thought things were. And I said then, and if, if China was not it made clear to them that backing Russia was would be a huge mistake for them, that we would end up in this situation where it would almost certainly that China would back Russia. And so it has proved. And I, I do worry that there still seems to be numerous uh, countries in the West that continue to speak up and talk about their, their friendly terms with China as if this is going to be a way of bringing China back in. But I think that ship has sailed. And I think we're just in a process now of, of what it will take for the West to wake up to that reality. And it may well be, unfortunately, that it will be whether it be China providing weapons for, for Russia and Ukraine, whether it be some kind of activity in Taiwan. I don't know. But it seems that many people are still living in a in a delusional state of consciousness with regard to how they approach China. And I think it will take uh, perhaps longer than than we would like to see for them to wake up to that. So sorry, uh, David, I've sort of dumped a lot of thoughts on you there, but that's that's where it feels to me. Hard to be too optimistic as, as far as people are not really uh, moving on quickly enough, I don't think. And yet, and yet, there is, of course, room for optimism in this perspective of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Remarkable what Ukraine have managed to achieve with when, when we talk about how Russia were bigging up this big offensive. And so in that vein, of course, it's, it's vital to, to, to remain optimistic and to praise the heroism of the Ukrainians. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, we're coming to the end of our time together. So, Dom, can I go to you first for your final thoughts? Sure. Well, I mean, following on from Francis's uh, worry that there's a delusional state of consciousness around um, the international community at the moment. So this afternoon, we are going to have in Britain, we're going to have the release of the refresh of the integrated review. So the integrated review two, out two years ago, it was the foreign policy 
defence security and development policy. It was the big, big idea from the government uh, where where the country is going for the next 30 odd years. And then from that fellow defence command paper, i.e. the MOD then said, right, OK, so we're going to need this number of ships, tanks, planes and all the rest of it. Now, the IR, the Integrated Review, was seen as a good document. It was well written, written by a guy called John Bew in the in the Cabinet Office and the, the Foreign Office. He's, you know, he's a he's a global academic. He knows he knows his onions. He's a, it was really it was actually a very well written, coherent policy document, and it did identify Russia as a very acute threat and China as a sort of long standing, a uh, long long term competitor. However, obviously, since then you had the full scale invasion of Ukraine, and so the IR, the Integrated Review, has needed a bit of a refresh just just in light of recent events. Even though it was correct, I think two years ago, there was such a shock to the international system that it did need a refresh. So that's coming out this afternoon. Um, I've got a copy. It's literally arrived as we're, as we're on air, but it's embargoed for another couple of hours. So I'm not going to um, break any embargo there. But, and I've not read it, so I'm not, giving away, I'm not accidentally going to give away any language. But the thing to look for and the thing I'll be looking for in this integrated review refresh is the language. So does it phrase does it term china a risk it's a in the last one it was a global competitor and there were global challenges and all this kind of stuff but does it actually say it is a national risk china um and uh, i mean i don't expect it to harden up the language much about russia because it, it didn't didn't have to but it's all about i mean it's not going to from this the ministry of defense is not going to say oh right suddenly we need to go and pour troops into x country or navy move over to y ocean blah blah blah. it's not going to do that because the broad order is 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 correct it's just how how firm it is with that language and i think to to answer well hopefully it will answer francis's question about whether or not there is still this delusion in the international community or whether the the at least britain has woken up and is prepared to be a lot more demanding in its language and a lot more assertive you know, borderline aggressive in the language. So I'll have a look at that as soon as we finish here. We'll talk about it tomorrow. It'll be out. Um, you'll see it in the next couple of hours. The tweets will start breaking and there'll be stuff online about uh, the, the refresh of the integrated review. Thank you, Dom. For our very final thoughts, Francis Sternley. Thanks. Well, yes, I'll be also very interested in what the interview integrated review says. I, I also have not had any sight of it, although I'm less optimistic that the language will perhaps be as strong as perhaps we might like to see, given what seems to be the diplomatic reality to us, because I was quite struck by the remarks of uh, Rishi Sunak over the weekend, where he seemed to be sort of downplaying when asked about it, the threat posed by China. So I think that we can read into that. But of course, as you say, we'll know uh, within the next couple of hours what the state of play is with with regard to that. And I think it's also important to say that what leaders may be saying publicly and what governments may, stances may be publicly may be different than they are behind closed scenes. You know, um, it's closed doors. It's it, it, it may be that there is actually a lot more sophistication in terms of what's going on here. But anyway, we shall see. In terms of final thoughts, there's just a couple of stories that struck me today, both small. The first is uh, that a group of Russian women have appealed to Putin to stop sending their husbands and children to the front line like meat, and that's their term, with uh, without adequate training. This is a sort of viral video that's on Telegram, uh, the Telegram channel run by SOTA, which is one of the last independent news outlets in Russia. And these uh, women are sort of talking about where their husbands and children are and how unhappy they are about how the war is being conducted. One of them says that uh, their brother's been thrown like meat to storm fortified areas in Ukraine. My husband is located on the line of contact with the enemy, one woman says. Our mobilised men are being sent like lambs to 
the slaughter to storm fortified areas five at a time against 100 heavily armed enemy men. Now, we don't know much more about this video than that. We don't know how symbolic it is, how uh, common uh, this kind of articulation of anger is amongst Russian um, population. But nonetheless, these are the kind of things that you want to be watching out for because this kind of anger and frustration is what eventually will lead to a shift in the Kremlin's policy on sending mobilized men to Ukraine. So it's that kind of thing that we, we've got our antennas open for. And hopefully um, we'll, we'll be seeing more positive signs of that kind of just way of thinking. The other story, though, is I just think it's so important to keep coming back to this when we can. Um, there's been some new statistics of the number of children that have been killed in the last few weeks. And we're hearing that over 400 have been killed in three weeks alone. Now, Russia's missiles and shelling across Ukraine has, I think, over the course of the war, killed at least uh, 500 uh, children um, since February 24th, wounding 934. There are further um, 367 children um, that are considered missing, according to the prosecutor general's office. And local media reports are talking about the, the, the highest number of deaths of children being documented in the Donetsk and Kharkiv regions. So whenever we get these new statistics, I do think it's important to draw attention to them because every one of those children, of course, has has parents, has siblings, and it's just you know a, a, a huge tragedy. And whilst today, of course, we've been speaking so much about the the abstract geopolitical ramifications of the war, um, it's important not to miss the human story, and which is why we always try and draw attention to that as well. It's the day after the Oscars, and in a first for Ukraine The Latest, I recently spoke to an Oscar winner, the French filmmaker Michel Hazanavicius. He directed the modern black-and-white silent film The Artist in 2011 and won the Academy Award for Best Picture at the 84th Academy Awards the following year. Michel is one of the ambassadors, the first from France, of the United24 Project, a fundraiser launched in May last year by President Zelensky to aid with the reconstruction of war-torn Ukraine. Michel recently visited Ukraine and met President Zelensky, as well as with several individuals whose homes have been destroyed by the conflict. We discussed this, the ambition of the charity, which has so far raised $288 million, and the ways that the war in Ukraine is shaping European culture. This is our conversation. Thank you for your time today. Can I start by asking where you were and what your reaction was when the full-scale invasion began last year? Well, it was a strange moment because we didn't knew it will happen, but it was in the air somewhere. And uh, and I was working. I'm doing an animation movie right now. So I was working on it during the day and the evening. I had a, a screening of one of my old movies with a masterclass with students. So, so it was like very strange because uh, the life had to continue. But I mean, it was really shocking. So. Yeah, I remember exactly what I was doing that day. And what was it about the invasion and what's happened since that resonated with you so personally? I don't know. I've been asked if it was because of my personal roots, because my grandmother is from Ukraine and my other grandparents are from Poland and uh, Lithuania. So maybe it's true. I hope it's not just that. I made a movie like maybe 10 years ago, called The Search. And it was about war in Chechnya. And I had done a lot of research on uh, the, the Russian army and how it worked. And, and, and it still works like this. 
And it's a very cruel army, and, and it's uh, barbarian way of um, how do you create not monsters, but um, very uh, harsh soldiers and very cruel soldiers, and how you can create all that violence. So I don't know, maybe I was a little bit more aware, and I don't know, I feel really involved in that conflict, but the same way I was with uh, Georgia, and I, I, I done this movie I was talking about, The Search in Georgia, and I, I had many people I knew there. So I strongly believe, maybe more, not just because of my roots, but I strongly believe that uh, Putin is a very dangerous president, and I think he's fighting the idea of a democracy. So I think this is not just about Ukraine. It's really about all of us. Thank you. Now, the reason we're speaking today is you are the first French ambassador for the United24 fundraising platform. First of all, what is United24 and what does your role involve? Well, it's a strange story, actually, because I just organized an auction. I started to do it in March of uh, uh, 2022, but it took a long time because I did it just by myself. I have no staff, I have no team, so... And uh, I collected a lot of items from movies or from actors, the producers, directors, gave me some objects from the movie industry. And uh, we organized with the Art Curial, which is like kind of souvenir for you. And uh, so they're auctioneers and they helped me to organize that auction. And we collected 250,000 euros. And while I was uh, setting this up, I discovered that uh, President Zelensky had created United24. So I thought it was the best way to give the money. Uh, and uh, because I was sure that the money will go to Ukrainian people directly and not be lost in the, the, the big NGO, for example. And uh, so we contacted them. And actually, I, I also have been contacted by the Olena Zelenska Foundation, which is the foundation of Mrs. Uh, Zelenska. And I split the money in two. And, uh, and when we did this, they, they asked me to become a, an ambassador for them, uh, United24. And of course, uh, I said yes. And were, it was an honor for me. And uh, they invited me to Kiev, and I've been there. And um, I'm an ambassador and I'm here to collect money. So any of <laughs> of you have some money, you can go on that platform, United24, and you will find a way, a very good way to spend your money. Well, we have no shortage of listeners, which we're very grateful for. As you say, you were in Kiev recently. Can you talk to me about what that was like, seeing the devastation wrought by the invasion? Yeah, it's a very strange trip, actually. I mean, it's not like, I can say I was working. I, of course, it was not tourism. And it's a mix of a lot of very different feelings. First, you're shocked by the violence of what happened there. And when we, you talk with people who were in Bucha or in Irpin and uh, people who fought against the Russian army, I mean, you, it's very different than looking at images here in France or in the UK or wherever far from the country. So when you're on the site, yeah, it's really shocking. But on the other hand, when you talk with people in Kiev, people who are working, people from United24, people who work with the president and all the people we met, you really can feel a, a very, very strong pulsation of life. And they really 
want to keep a normal life. They are into the action. Nobody pretends to be something different. Nobody is taking like the the, the pose of a hero or whatever. I talk with the, the mayor of Irpin, which is, I mean, you, you obviously know that city. They stopped the, the, the Russian invasion here in Irpin. It's like few kilometers from Kiev and uh, talking with the mayor. I mean, it's, he was a guy like you and me. I mean, he, he was smiling. Nobody left their sense of humor, for example. They are really funny. And he was talking like a very, very, very normal guy, not a hero of war. He was like, can you imagine something like that in a, a strange life experience to, to fight against Russia? And so, and he was showing me uh, photos on his high phone and it was like so normal. And people were so easygoing. And I was really amazed. And it gives you a very different perspective on things. So for me, it was a very important training. So staying with people, I understand that you're raising funds for the reconstruction of a specific building in Irpin. What is that building? Well, it's a building that has been bombed. So they lost the last uh, floors and the, the roof. And now they are... 300 people have left that building and now they live maybe somewhere in the west of Ukraine or in Europe. I don't know exactly where are they, but one thing is sure, they want to come back. So the idea is to rebuild this building and to allow these 300 people to come back to their homes. And they really want to, as I said, to keep a normal life. And and a lot of people told me, we want to stay here. Even if it's dangerous, we want to stay here because if we leave Kiev, they're going to take it. And it's true when you walk into the city, when you see that city, it's such a, a big European, big city, and nobody can take it, actually. I mean, so they want to keep it that way. So to rebuild that building is part of that spirit. And there's just one family, a woman her husband and their kid, they live here. There are just three of them in a small apartment. And they actually, they don't have heat. I mean, I think they have problems with the, uh, water also, but they want to stay here and they want their building to be alive again. Thank you. And you said you met President Zelensky and spoke with him. I'm just wondering what you discussed and what it was like meeting him. Well, I'm a movie maker. I mean, and I do especially comedies. So don't expect me uh, to give you some strong revelation or, or a, a secret, defense secret. I was amazed by the charisma of uh, this man. I was amazed by how easygoing he is. And as all the other Ukrainian I met, he kept his sense of humor. He's very smiling. So we talk about United 24. We talk about how important it was for them that people from other countries help or send some money, but also messages. And they really need to know that we stand by them in a way or another. So it can be in a very concrete way, but also even if it's symbolic. And we talk about how United 24 is functioning, but I was not just by myself. There was another ambassador and people from United 24. And I also offered him a little statue of uh, Winston Churchill. When he saw the statue, he said, oh, I know this guy. And he said, yeah. And I wrote him a note like uh, saying that uh, 
I think history made a, a spot for both of them side by side because I, I really think he's that kind of a historical character. And the day he said to President Biden that he didn't need, he needed weapons, not a taxi, I think it was a very important day for uh, all of us. Absolutely. And just staying on that theme, for a living, you have to have your finger on the zeitgeist, on the cultural pulse, as it were. How deep an impact do you think that the war has had? I don't know. It's very difficult. I know that in US, they are really, they make movies very quickly with the, the, the recent history. We don't really do that in France. You do it a little bit more in UK, but in France, we still don't have any major movies about the war in Algeria, for example. So US maybe can do it. And, but I think maybe I hope that once the victory will be effective, I hope that we can help Ukrainian cinema and movie makers to tell their own stories. Because I'm pretty sure they're, I mean, I'm not pretty sure, I know that they have some huge stories to tell now. So I think it's our role to help them to tell their own stories. I was amazed by one thing that they told me also. They sell a lot of, uh, in the bookshop, a lot of books about Ukrainian history. They really want to reappropriate their own history that has been stolen by the Russian propaganda or the, the Russian force. And I think cinema has a role to play in that reappropriation. But I, I don't know if it's for the French movie makers or it's very difficult to know. And in my case, just talking about me, I'm still working on the animation movie I was talking about, and I, I really don't know what will be next. I've never been able to predict what will be my next movie. I have to finish the one I'm doing. But what, one thing is sure is that I, uh, yeah, this trip was important. So maybe it will have a, 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 an effect on my production. I don't know. Might we one day see a war film from you about Ukraine, perhaps? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Staying on that theme, you reference France and French culture. On the podcast, we've talked about every country in Europe's reaction to this war. And of course, there have been so many nuances on how each individual country has responded to the war due to their own culture. Germany's response has been shaped by its history. France's response has been shaped by its history. I just wonder if you have any reflections on the French response and President Macron's particularly. What I appreciated, I mean, it's I think for the first time we had a European response. And I think this invasion was, of course, first about Ukraine, but I think in Putin's plan, it was an aggression also against democracy and against Europe. And I think he sees Ukraine as a, not a real country, but just a wall to protect his, uh, his government. And I think he's really afraid to finish like uh, Ceausescu. And uh, so his enemy is the idea of democracy. And uh, so I think he wanted to weak Europe, and I think he, he failed on that. And he, he created maybe for the first time a political response from Europe, which was unanimous. And that was a good thing, if we can talk about good things. But I think that was a very interesting. I don't, very interesting. I don't know, of course, there, there was the response of Germany was, of course, done because of that culture, 
but also because of their business and how they have to uh, deal with Russia. It's not just about culture. Usually people from culture were um, uh, yeah, unanimous in uh, condemning the, the full-scale invasion of Russia. Thank you. Now, United24 has lots of prominent creatives as its supporters, yourself, of course, famous actors like Mark Hamill, Barbara Streisand, also historians that will be familiar to our listeners like Timothy Snyder. Why do you think that matters to have that international spread, but also creatives especially? Well, it's a rule of ambassador. I mean, we are here to represent an organisation and we are here to create a link between people who want to help an organization we, which is maybe the best way to collect the money and to put it where the country really needs it. So um, I think it's not a political channel. It's something a little bit different. So they need some people that can have a voice in the public space. And uh, so, of course, someone like Barbara Streisand or, or Mark Hamill, they have a voice. And I've been very honored to be chosen in France. But as I said, I mean, it was a little bit strange because I collected some money and give them by myself. So now I have this uh, responsibility to try to find some more money. And I discovered organizing that auction that people are really ready to enlarge their field of action. But we have to give them the opportunity to do it. When something like this happens, like Russia invading another country, that's few years ago, that could be in a James Bond movie, but now it happens for real, and people are very shocked. They, we, we don't know what to do, and we have the feeling that we can't do anything. But it's not true. We can do things. But some people have to give the opportunity to other people to do something. And United24 is a, is a wonderful opportunity for everyone. I mean, you really can give... $20 or euros or 50 or 1,000. Uh, if you have 1 million, please give 1 million. But you can do something. And not only you can do something, but you can choose where you want your money to be spent. And you have three goals in your United 24. One is for the military aspect. Another one is for the medical aspect. And the third one, which... I am in is for the reconstruction, rebuilding the country. And all these goals are really, really important. So you can choose and you can really do something. And just one final question from me. We always try to do this for all of our guests. Is there anything that we haven't discussed today that you would like to talk about? No, I think you're a wonderful journalist and <laughs> you covered the army. Let me think about it. I think you, I mean, you do a wonderful job covering this major event in our history. And there's something very important. We didn't tell it, and, but one danger would be that people get tired of it because people are used to TV series and people are used to the quickness of the information and everything goes fast. This is a war. And the price of peace will be uh, heavy. And, and things take time. Things take a lot of time. To win that war might be longer than expected. But even once the war will be won, 
we still will need to help them. We will need to help them to rebuild the country, to protect this part of the world, and to, to build a space for freedom. So be patient and please don't get tired. I mean, they really fight for us, so we have to stand by them. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.